so uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for coming today, for braving uh, the elements. <laughs> I know we, uh, what we mean when we say that here in Florida is a little bit different when they say it in the Midwest or in other places in the Northeast. But you're here, and so uh, just in case anyone is checking, your perfect attendance streak for today, for this year, is intact. So you're well on your way to your New Year's resolution. Uh, Daniel, our youth director, and I are joking that today is going to be the best sermon I've ever preached this year. I promise you <laughs> it will be so. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched the show uh, called The Undercover Boss. Has anyone seen Undercover Boss before? It's a pretty cool reality show. I don't know if it's still going on now. But the, uh, the premise is that you get these high-level executives from, uh, from these major corporations, and they go undercover as the boss, and they dress up, and they act as if they're just the common minion, the employee of a large corporation. And so uh, the one show that I, that I remember is uh, one where there was a Korean man. He had a very common name. His name was David Kim. He was a chief executive officer of a brand called Baja Fresh. Anyone know Baja Fresh? Okay. <clears throat> it's kind of like a, a mix between what you say, like Moe's and Chipotle kind of a deal, Baja Fresh. Uh, fresh Mexican uh, food, Tex-Mex. And so David Kim's the CEO of that, uh, of that company, and uh, he goes undercover, and he works at this one uh, particular uh, store. I forget where, where it's located, but he goes undercover as this guy named Ken, Right? Ken is walking around, the new guy, uh, the new employee, and he's being trained. And they just have, ca- they have cameras on him and see how the company actually works. He wants to see how the company actually works. And then you see how they treat him without knowing who he is. And so thinking that he's just this new guy named Ken, uh, the operations manager comes in and says, okay, you need to go and, and run the register, something like that. While well, he goes and, and he starts like flirting with some of the cashier people, he does this other stuff and then comes back to see that Ken has made a bumbling mess of himself because he hasn't been properly cha- trained. And so he chastises him, he makes fun of him. And then the next thing, uh, Ken goes out to um, work the lunch rush without really having much prep, without having much training. And he doesn't know how to work a cash register. And so the lines of people are getting longer and longer and longer. People are starting to complain. And so the manager on duty takes him off the cash register, replaces him, and says, okay, we're going to walk around the dining area. And she basically parades him around the lobby where people are eating, making him apologize for his flawed service. And on and on it goes like that. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, man, she had, no, she had no idea. If she knew who she was talking to and who she was relating to, it would be a whole different story. Because the happy ending at the end of the show is that there's this one employer who just bends over backwards in order to go above and beyond the call of duty. In order to, I forget exactly the story, he's poor and, and he's trying to pay his way through college or some craziness like that. And at the end, the CEO Ken takes off his costume and says, my name is David Kim. I'm the CEO of Baja Fresh. And the guy starts crying. And he's like, I want to give you your own Baja Fresh franchise. It's powerful. It's redemptive in so many ways. But at the end of the show, what I'm thinking, you can watch this probably on YouTube or somewhere. But the whole time I'm thinking, man, if these guys knew who they were talking to, it would change everything. And if only they understood, then they could have been granted access to something so much more than they could have ever begun to dream. As we begin this new year, the question I want to throw out there is, could it be that when we close our eyes to pray, that we don't really have the clearest idea of the one to whom we are praying. And because of that, we leave so much 
So much is left lacking in our hearts and in our lives because we don't fully know the one to whom we're praying. Today, your lives are going to be changed by the word of God as we come to understand through the pattern prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples. Who is it? To whom we pray. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We're going back to the Sermon on the Mount. You remember we started this, this countercultural idea. Jesus is not talking to the average Joe person on the street. He's talking to followers of Jesus Christ. He's saying this teaching is not for anybody out there. He's talking, yeah, the crowds are overhearing, but he's talking to those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And he's teaching them. He's saying this is how you ought to pray. Okay, this is how you ought to pray. And we're going to read Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Verses 9 through 13. And we're going to spend the first six weeks of this year really diving in and unpacking this prayer so that the hope is that our prayer lives would be deeply and permanently and eternally transformed. That's my hope. That's what I'm aiming for. That's what I'm praying for. And I trust that if we get this, uh, that the Lord would be faithful to us. Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. If you look again in verse 9, Jesus begins and sets a foundation, says, you want to get this prayer right, you've got to start with the foundation. You've got to understand. Here's what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Our Father in in heaven. What is it about these four tiny words, four little words, four words that every child past a certain age knows? Our Father in heaven. But if we understand what Jesus means when he says this, it can radically revolutionize the way that we pray. What is it? So in, in fact, I was going to spend uh, uh, all of uh, today working through verse, uh, all of verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But I realize that even these four words, uh, there's not enough time to unpackage all of this stuff. So I'm going to do my best in the time that we have. Uh, What does it mean, our Father in heaven? First thing we're going to understand is this idea of Father. The first thing that we have to understand is that prayer is more than just getting what we ask for. Prayer is more than just getting what we ask for. I think a lot of us have this idea. Here's what prayer is. I ask for something and I get it. But Jesus, in the beginning, when he says, our Father in heaven changes everything about the way we understand prayer to be. New Year's Day came, and it's the Asian custom. I don't know if any of you guys did this. Maybe uh, some of us in the, in the younger, uh, younger segment of Harvest did this. But um, in Asian customs on New Year's Day, you would, some of us might dress up in traditional Asian attire. This is how it is in the Korean homes. You dress up in your Korean attire, play a game where you throw up these bunch of sticks, and you move this little piece around. You eat a certain rice cake soup. But one of the things that you do, and probably the, the, the staple and the highlight for many young people, is that they would go before their, their elders, their mom and dad, their grandma and grandpa. They would bow, not in worship, but in reverence, and they would say this phrase, wishing blessing. Right? What is the phrase? They would do that. Basically, literally translated, this means, in this new year, may many blessings be yours. That's what they would say. Anyone do this? 
Okay. Sarah, you did this this year? Good. Excellent. Sarah is very respectful. Good. Uh, so some, Alex, you can put your hand down. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. So uh, a lot of us have maybe done this before. So I was talking with my brother. He's older and he's got a five-year-old son. And uh, they were teaching him for the past couple, couple of days how to say this. So he FaceTimed us and, and to Olivia and me, uh, little Josh, a five-year-old, uh, said, oh, yeah. And he started saying this Korean phrase to us. And we're like, oh, you know, that's great. Oh, you learned that so well. And, and they FaceTime paternal grandparents told them. They're like, oh, Joshua, you're so good. And then uh, their maternal grandparents were there. Uh, and so Joshua's family went to uh, grandparents' house in Portland. And when they did that, Joshua got on his knees and he did this. And then what happened, and this is what makes it great for all the kids, is that the grandparents give them an envelope if you're Chinese, it's a red envelope, right? Uh, but with Koreans, it's not a red envelope. You give them an envelope, and inside is money. Oh, this is beautiful. Right? Beautiful. Once you get to a certain age, you can't do it anymore. So make sure you get it in while you can. Sarah's still doing it, still making the money. But you do this, right? And you get money. It's an amazing thing. And so my brother was texting me. He said, I, uh, grandfather, right? Grandfather was so impressed with Joshua's knowledge of Korean. It's not an easy thing to say. And he said, Joshua, that's great. Do you know what that means? And he says, please, can I have some money? <laughs> that's what he thought it meant. It makes sense to a five-year-old. If I just say this thing, then he's going to give me an envelope filled with money. So what else would you be thinking but, please, can you give me money? As long as he gets the formula. I mean, this is like it, when your kids, if they go trick-or-treating for the first time, they knock on someone's door dressed up like a cute little cat or not cats are not cute but dressed up like a cute little something and they knock on the door someone opens the door you say trick or treat and they give you candy and the first time that happened for our kids at least they're like dude are you kidding me why are we doing this only once a year we should be doing this all the time right just as long as you say the right thing they give you all these goodies that you want and a lot of us think that's what prayer is don't we as long as i get the words right as long as I get the formula right, I'm going to get a little biscuit from heaven and it's going to make me happy. Please, can I have something that I'm asking for? A lot of us think that's what prayer is. But Jesus at the get-go of this prayer says, listen, we're praying to our Father in heaven. And he blows us up and he says, there's something more important, something vastly more important. Well, how do you see prayer? When you pray, when you pray, how do you see prayer? What do you think is the purpose of prayer? If you think prayer is just about getting the things that you ask for. See, here's how you know. If you've ever asked this question, why pray if God already knows what I want? If he already knows what I need. If he already knows what I'm thinking, why should I even pray? If that's a question that you're asking right now, then the probable explanation is that that's what you think prayer is. You think prayer is about asking for something and getting something from God. Because why should we? You're right. God does know everything. So why should we pray? In the same, for the same reason that I know what, every morning I'll ask Olivia, do you want coffee? Every other morning, I'll ask, do you want coffee? I know she wants coffee, but why do I ask her? Because you cannot build a relationship apart from communication. Because if I ask her, she'll say, oh my gosh, yeah, I need coffee. You know why? Last night was a rough night. Elise didn't sleep. She kept me awake all night. And then we begin to have a conversation. And through conversation, a relationship actually grows. 
every relationship is predicated upon communication. Jesus did not say this then is how you should pray. God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, you will be. He doesn't say that. He says our father. And this connotation of father is that there is a relationship that we have. You know, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable about two sons. A rich father and two sons, both of whom, you look at one son, he runs away, and you think, that's a bad boy. The other son stays home, and you think, he's a good boy. But at the end of the parable, Jesus actually says, no, 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 neither is, neither one was acting right. Here's, here's the, the thing that, that these two brothers have in common. The younger one says, okay, the younger one says, dad, give me my share of the inheritance. I want it so that I can go and do what I want. You never get your share of the inheritance until what? The father is dead. So basically, here's what he's saying. I want what you have, and I want nothing to do with you. Okay? That's what the younger son is saying. When he comes back, father throws a party, says, you've repented, you've come back, I love you. And the older son, who's always been dutiful and with the father, gets upset. Why? What does he say? He says, all these years I've been slaving for you, but you never once killed the fattened calf for me. What does he want? What does he want? What does he want? He's saying, this is what, at the, at the heart of it, what I've always wanted is I wanted your stuff. I wanted your cow, but you never gave it to me. Why? Because I was slaving for you and I deserve that stuff. Both of those sons, both of them wanted what the father had, but neither neither of them wanted a relationship with the father. They both wanted the riches of the father, whether it be the inheritance, whether it be the fat calf. If he knew, if the older son knew, what's the relationship that he sees with with, with his dad? He doesn't see it as a father. He sees it as a slave and a master. I need to earn this. I've been working and you never did that for me. What have I been working for? A lot of us think that's the way we need to relate to our God. I work, I work, I work, therefore I deserve these things. But we don't really want a relationship with our father. If he knew who his father was, all he needed to do was say, Dad, could we have a steak party for me and my friends? And the father surely would have said, absolutely, whatever you want. He says at the end, everything I own is yours. It was always yours. Why do you feel like you have to work for it? Because he doesn't understand that he has a father. And a lot of us don't understand that God wants to relate to us as a father. You see, if you think prayer is just about getting those things from God and you're upset because he's not giving it to you, then we have to realize that when Jesus says we pray to our father in heaven, our father, what we have to understand is that prayer is a whole lot more than just getting the things that we ask for. <clears throat> Three o'clock on Thursday night, Friday morning. We were all sleeping. Uh, the five of us in our, in our house were sleeping. Elise was sleeping in her room, which is basically Olivia's in my room. Uh, Manny and Elijah were sleeping in their room, which is basically Manny's room. And Olivia and I were sleeping in our room, which is basically Elijah's room. We're all sleeping. And about three in the morning, I hear the pitter-patter of bare feet on our laminate floor. And then standing in front of me is Elijah, three-year-old Elijah. He says, Daddy, Daddy, I peed and I'm all wet. And so I'm trying to, I'm looking around. I look at my clock. I was like, all right, Elijah, come here. Come to Daddy. And so he comes and I 
pull off his pants and I change him and all of these things. And, and I said, okay, Elijah, come. Let's go back to sleep now. Put him down. And he went back to sleep. And I think that's the beauty of understanding that you have a father. At any time, I, I, I wonder, I don't think you know, Elijah was thinking as he laid in his pee. Can I go to that bearded man? Should I wait until 8 in the morning? Do you think he's going to get mad? No. As soon as he realized that he was in trouble, he got up, ran to his daddy, and said, Daddy, I peed all over myself, and I need your help. That's what we do when we have a father, when we understand. He didn't work his way into my presence. He didn't earn his way into my presence. What did he do? He peed his way. That's all he did. He was jacked up, messed up, dirty. And he came because he knew that he had a daddy who loves him and who cared for him. And I wish that some of us would understand that instead of dealing with that, thinking that I'm not good enough to come to my daddy. Listen, if y'all's kids came to me and said at 3 in the morning, we're, we're, we're at a retreat or something like that, we're at some hotel, and your kids came to me and said to me, hey, hey, Uncle DL, wake up, wake up, wake up. I peed all over myself. You know what I would say to you? Say, I ain't your daddy. Maybe if it was one kid, I would do that. But 15 kids come, oh, oh, oh change, my, change my wet pants. No, you go find your own daddies because that's what dads do. And that's what kids who know that they've got a father do also. You have a father in heaven and he wants a relationship with you. And so many times we're just trying to get the formula right so that we can get the things from God that we want. But Jesus says at the outset, that's not who, God's not a sugar daddy. He's not a daddy who's just going to give you whatever you want. He's your father in heaven. And as soon as you begin to realize that, and you can understand that you can go to God whenever you want, however, whatever condition you find yourself in. We have a father. But he doesn't just give us whatever we want, right? You know that. The second thing that we see is he doesn't say, just pray to our father. Hallowed be your name. He says, our father in heaven. What does that mean? The second thing that we see is that we can trust that whatever God gives, however God answers, is for our best. However, ha- <laughs> when he's saying, our Father in heaven, that's what we're saying. He's saying, your God, right, the one to whom you pray is not just like every perfect good father. Right? A lot of good fathers on earth. He's not saying he's like every good father, just a lot better than all the other ones. He's saying he's your Father in heaven. What does that mean? The thought is that we can trust him no matter what we do. But he's talking about this sense in which God's ways are higher than ours. At New Year's Eve service, our, our pastor, our senior pastor talked about that. He said, our, uh, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, my, our, your thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above yours and my thoughts above yours. What does it mean that we have a father in heaven? Let me try and, let me try and explain it in this way. I don't know if uh, you guys have... Uh, has anyone ridden the Orlando Eye before? The Orlando Eye? Okay. One person in here, two people in here, three people. Right? Can we get a four or five? Okay. Uh, the Orlando Eye, for those of us who don't know, is uh, out on International Drive in the midst of the tourist area. This big Ferris wheel. And for a 22-minute ride or a 20-minute ride, you pay $22 or $20 or $20. I don't know if you 22 and 20 are some of the numbers. 
But you ride in this thing, and people pay all this money. People come from all over the world paying money to ride on this thing. You think about this for a second. Why would anyone do that? It doesn't go fast. Okay? There's no drops. There's no loop-de-loop. Right? There's no, I mean, you don't stand up and get chained in. You just sit in this car. It's air-conditioned, but you pay $20 for a 20-minute ride. Why? I'll tell you why, according to their website. Okay, this is what they say. So listen to this and see if you're not going to go and write it today. This is their invitation. If you want, you can close your eyes. It'll be so relaxing. Take a moment to escape and discover the magic and natural wonder Orlando has to offer from above. Be effortlessly lifted away in a capsule of calm and serenity to see Orlando in a way you've never seen it before. The iconic 400-foot-tall observation wheel provides breathtaking views of Central Florida in all directions with sights of downtown Orlando's skyline, theme parks, lakes, and lush landscape, and on a clear day, views of Cape Canaveral on the East Coast. Isn't that amazing? Why in the world would anybody ride on the Orlando Eye? Because of the view that they get from up there. Because there's a perspective that the Orlando Eye gives you that you cannot have anywhere else on earth. And because people want to see, they go up into the eye. The higher you go, okay, the higher you go, the more you can see. He says, You have a Father in heaven who sees everything. And our greatest prayers are bound and limited by the scope of our ability to see and to think and to conjure up the wisest things that we could think of. But God stands above in heaven seeing everything, not only all of Orlando, but the entire world, all the choices that we'll make and the interweaving of all of these things in order that his good, perfect, pleasing will would be accomplished even through our minuscule lives. Do you understand that our prayers are always limited by the scope of our wisdom? That the things that we think are the best things for me might actually be the worst thing for you. That healing that you pray for. You might get that healing, but it might prevent doctors from doing the kind of research that would allow millions of people to be healed. We are bound by the limitations of our own wisdom. And we always pray and wish and dream according to that which we see. Tim Keller said that we would pray, our prayers would be answered the way we pray every single time if we prayed knowing what God knows. But we don't. We don't. I spent the first two years of my life, uh, my college life, first two years of my college life, the University of Virginia, getting ready to and applying for taking prerequisites to enter into the McIntyre School of Commerce at Virginia. And I worked, I took accounting, economics, statistics, all these classes in order that I might apply and begin at the comm school, my third year. And as I was preparing, the end of my second year, uh, I got a letter from the School of Commerce. And my roommate Thomas had gotten the mail. Some of you heard me talk about this before. Roommate Thomas got the mail and he wrote on it, 
before he put on my desk, he said, whatever this note says, we will praise God together. He put it on my desk. I came home that night and I saw it. I saw that letter on my desk and I opened it up and it says, we regret to inform you that we have not deci- we've decided not to offer you acceptance into the School of Commerce. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, if Thomas had not prepared me for that, I think it would have been a very hard, hard thing. For the next day, I was pretty upset, pretty discouraged, pretty disappointed. But in time, as Thomas and other brothers came around and we started talking and, and just trusting, my heart was opened up to understand what God was already beginning to do in me. That wasn't business that God would call me into. It wasn't accounting. But the seeds were planted and being watered and a process set in motion where God would call me uh, into the ministry. What I thought was the best thing, I prayed. I had other people pray. I just pray I get into comm school. Pray I get into comm school. My dreams were limited by my own finite understanding of what I thought was best for me. But when we pray to our Father in heaven, we can begin to understand that even when we don't get the prayer answered the way we want to, we can still trust God. And you believe that even if you don't get into the college of your dreams, believe that even if you don't get the job of your dreams, even if you don't get the girl of your dreams, that you could still trust God, that he believed that this is the best thing for you. Because you see, you might get into the college of your dreams, but because you do, and the academic rigor in which you study will pull you further and further and further away from God, and you would spend the formative four years of your life not once setting foot inside a church to worship and seek the Lord God for your discipleship. You may have gotten that dream job that's going to pay you twice the salary, but it takes you away from the family that desperately needs you the most during their formative and adolescent years. You may have married, got the girl of your dreams, guy of your dreams, got everything that you're looking for, everything that you want, except he doesn't worship the Lord God. You begin to realize that you're locked into a dead-end marriage with someone who's resistant to change and does not hear the voice of God. You understand that all of our plans and all of our prayers are limited by the scope of our finite understanding, and sometimes the best thing that God can do for you is to say no to that prayer. Can you trust God in that? Can you trust God in that? Sometimes we think we're so smart. We think we know everything. God, you failed me. You screwed up. You messed up. If God answered everyone's prayers according to the finite limitations of our own wisdom, this world would be an utter chaos, an absolute train wreck. It would have been from the first five years of the earth's existence. It would have been just utterly devoid of anything right. But in the wisdom of God, in the sovereignty of God, he rules over this earth in divine providence and wisdom in a way that we could never begin to understand. You have and you pray to a father who is in heaven. Do you understand? Yet this would change everything. Change everything. But he doesn't just say, this then is how you should pray, father in heaven. That little word, that little, I don't even know, what do you call our? Is that a pronoun or a? I don't know what it is. That little word, our, that comes in front of Father makes all the difference in the world to the way we pray and maybe even to the way that God hears our prayers. What does that mean? The last thing that we see is that prayer is a family affair. Prayer is a family affair. And sometimes there's something more important for you to do than pray. 
Hmm, that sounds almost blasphemous. What do you mean by that? A few weeks ago, uh, I was talking about this idea that, you know, if you look in the prayer, our Father in heaven, jump to verse 11, give us today our daily bread, forgive our debts as we also forgiven our debtors, lead us not in temptation, deliver us from the evil one. You can see that Jesus' pattern prayer is all in the plural. It's not singular. It's not saying, give me my daily bread, forgive me my debts. And everything about this, okay, about this pattern prayer is corporate. You look in the section above when he's talking to the Pharisees and the hypocrites, he's saying, don't pray to be seen by people. Go into your closet and pray. What is he saying? He's saying, if you want to soar when it comes to praying, you need the wing of both private prayer and corporate prayer. You need both. Right? You're never going to reach your prayer potential apart from that. It, when it comes to prayer, praying individually, privately, secretly is the other side of the same coin of corporate prayer. You cannot have a spiritually vibrant prayer life without both. And Jesus makes that clear from his, out, from his initial teaching on prayer. But in a deeper sense, what does he mean by that? That this is a family affair. He says that we cannot separate the idea that God is Father from the idea that God is our Father. What does that mean? You see this throughout Scripture, and if you've taken Harvest to and you're going to hear this, beat it into your heart. That your relationship with God is always affected by your relationship with brothers and sisters and vice versa. Your relationship with people is always affected by your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is always affected by your relationship with people, especially amongst the people of God. Prayer is a family affair, what Jesus is saying. I think as a father, there's nothing that makes me happier than when my, well, there are some things, but this brings delight to me. And I would take pictures and videos of this when my three children are playing together in harmony and in peace. Like, this makes me happy. When they're hugging each other, when they're helping each other, when they're sharing with each other, when they're loving each other, when they're praying together, that makes me happiest. What breaks my heart is when one of them starts hitting the other one or taking from the other one or not sharing with the other one or not playing together. Nothing breaks my heart like that because there's something about the heart of a father that longs to see his children not just tolerating, not just getting along, but loving one another. Here's what he's saying. If that's not happening amongst your brothers and sisters, right, it's going to place a limitation on your prayers. Are you kidding me? Where does it say that? I'll tell you where it says that. Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Here's what Jesus says. He says, listen, as you come to worship, okay, as you come to worship, if you have something against one of your brothers and sisters. When you've come to worship, you got your gift. He says, leave that gift at the altar and go get reconciled with your brother and sister. Okay, one verse, one verse he says that. That's one passage. No, it's not. He doesn't just use Jesus to say that. He uses the greatest of apostles. He says through the apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 2.8, he says, I want men everywhere lifting holy hands in prayer without arguing or disputing. What he's saying, when you lift your hands to pray, because your prayers are going to be hindered if you've got dispute and wrong relationships with other people. Okay, that's just two verses. Let me give you a third one. Peter, the great 
follower of Jesus. First Peter 3, 7. He says, men, husbands. Okay, so this is for us men. If your prayers are being hindered, he says, be, he says, be considerate to your wives or else your prayers will be hindered. Men of God, husbands of God, you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and not reaching to the heavens? Okay, First Peter 3, 7 says, listen, how are you treating your wife? You consider it to her? You loving her? Because how you relate to each other, particularly in the family of God, makes all the difference in the world as it relates to how you pray to our Father in heaven. It's a family affair. So every Sunday when we get together, every Sunday when we get together, we'll come to worship our Father. It's a family reunion. Brothers and sisters, worshiping our Father. If we have something against a brother and sister in here, <laughs> excuse me, that can hinder the way that we worship our God. So imagine that uh, you're a father. You're having a birthday party, your 80th birthday, and you've had, with the same woman, you've had 20 children, all right? So here you are. You have 20 children scattered throughout the world, and for your 80th birthday, they all come back, and they all come back to Orlando. And so here we are having this birthday party, and everyone is getting along as they talk about the great things that they've been doing and talking about how they're loving each other and, and all these happy things are happening. And then you realize that there's a brother and sister who are icy with each other. When one, they, they, one of them comes from far, far away. And when he walked in, everybody gave him a hug except for her. And you can notice the tension and everyone else can notice the tension. It's thick in that place. And so it comes time in the party for everyone to bring their gifts and their birthday presents to you as a father. And they're bringing their gifts to you. And that son and that daughter of yours who are quarreling with each other, they come and they say, Dad, here, I saved up over the past 50 years of my life a million dollars, and I wanted to give it all to you. What would you say if you're the father of that bickering son and daughter? I thank you for honoring me with that. But if you really want to honor me with that, I don't want your money. I want you and your sister to be reconciled and to be right with each other. That's what Jesus is saying. A lot of times we bring this worship that we think is so sacrificial, and it is maybe. It hurts. It's costly. We're bringing this big check that represents the tithe of our sweat and labor. We offer it to God. Can I tell you, God doesn't need our gifts. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. But what he wants is what he will not take from us. He wants us to be reconciled with one another because it's a family affair. To dwell above with ones we love, oh, that will be my glory. But to dwell below with ones I know, well, that's another story. I know we say that. But he's called us to family. You know, sometimes life in a family, a big family, is messy. It can be yucky. It can be icky. I remember talking with a, uh, one, one uh, parent who said that when their oldest son was younger, right, and they had a baby, that older son was so good with the baby, loving, nurturing, kind. But as that baby grew older and began to talk, older brother said, that little boy is so annoying now. <laughs> so annoying. Sometimes we get like that when they first 
become a believer. We love them. We nurture them. We coddle them. But as they begin to grow, begin to get upset. They're annoying. This is life in the family. It's messy. Sometimes it's ugly. The family is busted. It's broken sometimes. But for all of the drawbacks of being in the family, the blessings are infinitely greater. We have a Father in heaven. And we have a Father in heaven to whom we can go anytime. Jesus says, you have a Father. That's why he says to the Pharisees, the reason why they could not pray to their Father in heaven is because they didn't know their Father. That's why they're trying to impress other people because they didn't have security here. They're looking for security here. And every single one of us is born into this world with the inability to call God our Father because we're sinful and he's perfect in holiness. So what changes in our lives that allows us to actually be able to call him our Father in heaven? What is it that enables us to do that? A couple weeks ago when uh, on Saturday, one Saturday morning when Korean school had ended. A lot of Manny's friends had left and, and gone home, except for one of her friends, a uh, little, uh, little gal named Ella. And they were playing around and running around. And at a certain point, Manny said, Ella, you want to go to my daddy's office and play? And Ella said, no, I can't go there. I said, yes, you can. She said, no, I, I can't go there because I'm not allowed to go to that place. Manny said, yes, you are. Yes, you are. I said, no. What is it about Ella that caused her to think that she would not dare to walk into that office. And he said, yes, you can come. Watch, I'll ask. He said, Daddy, Daddy, can Ella and I go play in your office? He said, yeah, go ahead. You can go and play. And she said, see, Ella, you can go and you can play in that place where mere mortals fear to tread. <laughs> Why? How was she granted access into that place? Because the father enabled his child to bring someone in to that place where before we could never go. How is it that we who are born into this world without the ability to call God our father, orphans in this life, that we could dare call him our father? Because the only begotten child says you can come where even angels fear to tread, and I'll take you into that place. How? Because the Son of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, became a man so that men could be sons of God. And at the cross, what Jesus did was that he took the very thing that we fear the most. We fear being abandoned. We fear being not heard. We fear being rejected. And he took all the cosmic rejection and fear upon himself, treated as if he were the sinner so that when we who put our faith in him and his perfect work stand before God, we would be treated as the perfect son of God could be treated. Therefore, we can go at three in the morning, peace stains all over us, and we can stand and we can say, Daddy, take me as I am. And he will hold us and he will wrap us in his arms and say, whatever you want, everything I own is yours. This is what we mean. This is what he means when he says, we pray, this then is how you should pray our Father in heaven. Jesus paid the price at the cross for us to go where we couldn't go before. He paid the price so that we could get into the presence of our Father 
and never be rejected. He paid it. It's all ours. So let's go. Let's pray. Let's change the world. Let's experience intimacy with the Father. He's our Father in heaven. Let's pray. As we pray to our Father in heaven, is there something that the Lord is impressing upon your heart? Something that you've done or something that someone has against you because of things that they think you've done to them? Is there someone to whom you need to go and reconcile before you come to the table of grace? Before you come to give your gifts to the Lord. Let's take some time to do that. Take some time to do that. It's okay to do that here. Maybe you feel like, yeah, you know, I I always thought prayer was just about what I can get from God and, and God is challenging me today. Let's get into a habit of daily being with God, daily interacting with our Father that our relationship with him might grow, that we might feel confident to come before him. Everything about prayer is contingent upon this reality, our Father in heaven. Maybe you've felt like you needed to work in order to get into the presence of God. Sometimes you felt like you weren't good enough to get into the presence of God. Felt like you weren't good enough to pray to him. Let's be renewed in the gospel. That it's because of the finished work of Jesus, not because of your works, but the work of Christ that gives you confidence and security to come before him. Let's spend a few moments to pray, to talk to our Father in heaven. Let's repent if we need to. Let's engage if we, let's worship if we need to. You have a Father in heaven if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, then open your heart to him. Jesus, come into my life and be my Savior, that I might have God as my Father. Let's spend a couple moments right now just praying in that way to the Lord. Psalm, I think it's Psalm 66, 18. The Word of God tells us if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. Is there sin that we're cherishing, that we're not letting go, that we're not repenting of? Let's uh, confess that to the Lord God, and then let's turn away. Let's turn away from sin cross before me, world behind me, no turning back, no going back to that old life. I might fall again, I will fall again, but I get back up and I look to the cross. Spend a couple moments in prayer that way. Forgive us for forgetting who it is that we're talking to and kicking and complaining and cursing at what we think is a perceived lack of wisdom in your part. Lord, have mercy on us. 
purify our hearts for thinking we know better than you. And help us to think about all that we have left in the prayer closet, in the storehouse of heaven, because we have forgotten that we have a rich father, a good, good father, not just a rich, good father on earth, but a rich and good father in heaven who owns everything and who says to his children, everything I have is mine. The God whom it says in Ephesians 3.20 is able to do immeasurably more than all that we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. If only we knew to whom we pray. Lord, open the eyes of our understanding. Sear the words, our Father in heaven, into our hearts. Lay that as a foundation of every prayer that we pray so that we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt the confidence with which we can come before the presence of the Almighty. We are coming to a King. Large petitions with us bring for your power and love are such that we can never ask too much. Remind us that you are able and that you're willing and that you're wise and that you are good and that you love us so very much. We are not orphans. We are dearly loved children. May we rest in our glorious identity May we live our glorious inheritance knowing who we are in Christ. We love you, Father, because you have loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.